Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Izzy, and uh, I was a deacon at CBC for three years until very recently when I had to step down because I took a new job in D.C. Uh, the hours my new job uh, required made it impossible to continue as a deacon. But because we have an amazing deacon team here at CBC, I'm thankful that our church family will continue to be well served. Uh, Pastor Milt asked me to preach this morning because our passage from Acts 6, 1-7 through 7, tells the story of the very first deacons of the church. And it's my absolute joy to preach this message, and it's really great to see everyone here this morning. Our theme for this sermon series in the book of Acts is Witness and Wonder. As the early church grows, it bears witness to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, performing wonders that testify to the power of the gospel. John Stott, English theologian and evangelist, observed that the first part of Acts is a story of three pressures that threaten to destroy the early church. The first pressure is external persecution from the culture surrounding the church in chapter 4. The second is moral corruption from within the church, chapter 5. And the third is distraction from the preaching of the gospel in chapter 6. In the previous weeks, we've seen the church successfully withstand the first two assaults. In chapter 4, we see rulers and elders and scribes in Jerusalem, together with the high priests, threaten Peter and John and command them not to teach or speak in the name of Jesus. But this effort fails to stop the gospel. And in fact, the early church continues to grow. In Acts 4.31, we read this. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Last Sunday, Pastor Milt preached on Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira conspire to elevate themselves in the church through deception and lies. Peter turns to Ananias and tells him, he has not offended men, but rather God himself, and he is instantly struck down. Lies and deception have no place in the community of the believers. And so Satan ploy, Satan's ploy to sow moral corruption within the church fails. Now comes Satan's most devious ploy, distraction and internal divisions that threaten the purpose and the unity of the early church. Will the early church resist the enemy's latest scheme? Let's find out together. Our passage today is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In this story, the church faces an enormous problem. The problem is that the way the church cared for its members was causing infighting within the church. And this disunity threatened the ability of the church to continue preaching the gospel. The question that faced the early church in Acts 6 was this. Should the church preach the good news of Jesus Christ? Or, instead, should the church spend its energy caring for one another? Now, I think most of you already know this is a trick question. All right? It's a false choice. The church should preach the gospel and care for its members. But how the early church got to the answer it did is the subject of our message this morning. And it reveals a great deal about how we, the local church in America, should respond to these same challenges the early church faced. So let's dig into this passage together. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. 
Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right. We should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In the previous passage, the disciples are threatened by external persecution, dragged before the ruling council. They're commanded not to preach about Jesus. But Peter answers for them all. He says, we'll rather obey God than men. The boldness of the apostles is a powerful witness. Thousands in Jerusalem joined the first church. But with increasing popularity comes a big problem. You see, 300 years before the Romans ruled Judea, it was the Greeks under Alexander the Great who conquered the region. And in their wake, they brought Greek language, Greek philosophy, and Greek culture with them, which then intermingled with the religion and cultural outlook of those who were conquered. Now, if we fast forward to the time of Acts, in those days in Judea, there were two cultures, two main cultures among the Jewish people. There were the Hellenists, These were Jews whose cultural outlook was heavily influenced by Greek culture. They read their Old Testament in Greek. They talked about Greek philosophers. They went to see Greek plays, and they spoke Greek among themselves. They were a product of Greek civilization, and they tended to be well-educated, but they were a minority. And then there were the majority, the traditional Jews. These Jews read their Old Testament in Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic and refused to become part of Greek culture because they thought that being Greek was contrary to being Jewish. Now, into this culture war steps the apostles. And interestingly, in this passage, we find that the early church is made up of both Hellenists, the Greek Jews, and Hebrews, the traditional Jews, who both believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, think about this for a moment. The power of the gospel preached by the apostles, is so powerful, so compelling, it doesn't matter what cultural background, what language, or what education people come from. In this way, they share something in common. They all believe that Jesus is the Son of God who rose from the dead. Now, part of the reason why so many start to believe is probably because of how the early church cared for one another. Even during the most prosperous days of the Roman Empire, The average life expectancy, get this, the average life expectancy was only 35 years. People died frequently from disease, malnutrition, or just overwork. Then, as is now, women typically outlived men. So becoming a widow was unfortunately a very frequent occurrence. 
And one of the things that the early church did was to collect food from the entire church and to share it with widows to make sure they survived. But here in verse 1, there's a problem. The Greek Jews complain that their widows are overlooked. The daily distribution of bread is only going to the widows who are traditional Jews. Now this isn't a small matter. Without food, the widows who are Greek Jews will likely starve. And it isn't because there is enough food. These Jews feel that they are overlooked because they are Hellenists, even though they also believe in Jesus. At this point, the church numbers in the thousands. If the 12 apostles themselves did the daily bread distribution, there wouldn't be enough time for prayer and for preaching. So the apostles are faced with the question that I posed to you at the beginning of this message. Should the church focus on preaching of the gospel, or should it spend its energy caring for its members? In verse 2, the apostles gather the full number of disciples, probably a hundred more at this point, and announce that they will not stop the prayer and preaching ministry. They can't stop. The message of the gospel has to go on. But look at verse 3. They also decide to create a new office in the church that is devoted to caring for these widows. So what is the apostles' answer to the question that I posed at the beginning of this message? Should the church focus on the preaching of the gospel or taking care of its members? Answer, yes. All right. Now, I do want you to stop and think about how remarkable this is. All the religions of the world have leaders who teach and preach and pray. But Christianity is the only one that has a second category of religious office solely for taking care of people. Because taking care of people is a spiritual calling. If God was only interested in his glory, we would only have preachers and teachers. But the God we serve is not just interested in his glory. He's a God who knows each of us by name. He cares about our struggles. And he wants us to care for each other. That's the kind of God that you and I worship. Now, you may be tempted to think that this division of leadership in the early church was because the apostles thought that their ministry of preaching was more important than helping widows. But you would be wrong. Because we know this. We know this from the Greek words that Luke used to write the book of Acts. In verse 2, the apostles say, they should not give up preaching to serve tables. Instead, in verse 4, the apostles declare they will devote themselves to the ministry of the word. But if you look at the passage in the original Greek, the root word for to serve in verse 2 is the same as the word for ministry in verse 4. That root word is diakonos, from where we get the word deacon. What does it mean? That word means servant. So the apostles are saying, we should not be serving tables, we should be serving the word of God. They're both acts of service, just in different ways. And they're both necessary in the local church. God has ordained them both. Now, let's spend some extra time unpacking this idea. Apostle Paul, writing to the early church in Rome in AD 57, he says this in Romans 12, 4 through 8. <coughs> Excuse me. He writes this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Just as prophecy and teaching is a gift, service is also a gift. In fact, whatever things we do to support one another in the family of God are given to us to bless other believers. The question for each of us is not really what gift we were given. The question for us is whether we are faithful in using that gift that God has given us. And there's no indication in this passage, nor in our text from Acts this morning, that the teaching gift was elevated above the service gift. One is not better than the other. They're both essential to the goodness and the well-being of the church body. Back to the passage at hand. Notice in verse 3, the main qualifications of the deacons was spiritual. They were to be full of the spirit and wisdom, having good reputations in the community. These qualifications were expanded by Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, and follow along as I read. The passage reads this way. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, or the women, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Notice the expansion of character qualifications here. Dignity, honesty, self-controlled, humble, blameless, a one-woman man. Nothing about great personality or charisma or the ability to use Excel. <laughs> Why? Because the deacon's role is spiritual. The service that he or she does is for the glory of God and for the good of the church. That, that service starts by honoring God with character and integrity. Otherwise, it's not done for God at all. Now, let's go back to the original passage. Let's look at verse 5, okay? One important thing to notice about the deacons that they chose. In verse 5, look at the names that Luke takes the time to write down. You notice anything about those names? They're all Greek names. This is how we know that the first six deacons are Hellenist Jews. The seventh deacon, Nicholas from Antioch, was a proselyte, meaning a Greek convert to Judaism. That guy wasn't even Jewish by birth. So if the deacons are caring for both Hebrews and Hellenists, why did the apostles choose all Hellenists? Well, 
The answer is, is to show the Greek Jews that not only were their widows going to be taken care of, but also that they trusted the Greek Jews to take care of everyone else. The apostles bent over backwards to show their Hellenist brothers and sisters that they cared about treating them fairly, even to the point of placing Hebrew widows in their care. This is a powerful way to break down prejudice in a church. The way a church takes care of its own members says a lot about the spiritual health of the church, especially those members who are from marginalized communities. People in church who aren't in majority, who aren't usually sitting in the front row, groups of people in the church who are most often overlooked. Now how this applies today to our church is really something for us to think about. Are there groups of people like that in our church here? And how do we as a church take care of them? So what do we know about these deacons? What we do know, what happened to Stephen. Pastor Mill is going to preach next Sunday on what happens to Stephen. So I'm not going to steal Mill's thunder. But there's going to be a spoiler alert, okay? Stephen's life doesn't end well. Or does it end well? All right, come back next Sunday and find out. (laughs) Philip the deacon ends up on the road in Gaza walking towards Egypt, where God sends him to an Ethiopian official, the treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia. When Philip explains the gospel to him, the official gets baptized and becomes the first Ethiopian follower of Jesus. His conversion starts what we now know as the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, an African denomination of 50 million believers. What we notice here is that, yes, the deacons were servants of the early church, but they were much more than that. In certain seasons of their life, God called them to evangelize or to be missionaries. Then God would call them to preach, whatever they did and wherever they went. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. You could say that they were the influences of their day, proclaiming the gospel message. The need for our day and age is the same. We need more influencers for the gospel, don't we? Now, the Bible is silent on what happened to the remaining five, so we have to rely upon church tradition. Church tradition states that Prochorus became a bishop in Antioch before he was martyred. Tradition also states that Nicanor was martyred in 76 AD. Timon, he later became a bishop in Greece. He was also martyred. Church tradition states that Parmenas moved to Philippi, where he was martyred in 98 AD during the reign of Emperor Trajan. Nicholas is the deacon we know the least about. Some early church fathers wrote that he lived a quiet life. Others wrote that Nicholas became a heretic and left the faith. The history is unclear. We just don't know for sure. Now, I know all this talk about martyrdom is making some people nervous. I hope I'm not scaring anyone who's a current deacon at CBC. I don't expect that during your term you're going to get martyred. But I really want you to see all these deacons as like real people who made real difference in the history of the church by stepping up and serving the church. They accomplished some amazing things. In some cases, they paid the ultimate price. For myself and those who are deacons here now and those who have been deacons at CBC and deacons of churches all over the world, we are following in the legacy of these first seven deacons. I want to thank the brothers who have been part, or are currently part, of the deacon team. Uh, Here's the current deacon team. 
Uh, church, I really encourage you to get to know these brothers and support these faithful servants in their ministry. Uh, every spring here at CBC, we issue a call for deacons. As I mentioned before, I've stepped down already, and we expect that next spring we're going to have a few more deacons and their terms. If you've been at CBC for a few years and would like to consider becoming a deacon next spring, please let um, a deacon, me, one of the elders or pastors know. Let's go back to the passage and finish it. So in verse 6, the apostles present the men to the entire assembly of Christ's followers, and they lay their hands on them, affirming their positions in the church. Pastor David Mathis writes that, quote, the visible sign of the laying on of hands publicly marks the beginning of a new formal ministry for these seven, recognizing them before the people and asking for God's blessing on their labors. So the laying on of hands sets apart a qualified leader for a specific ministry and signals a fitness to bless others. Here, this act by the apostles is a public affirmation of the church office these seven men now hold. Because of these seven deacons, the threat of internal division within the early church ceased. Both Hellenist widows and Hebrew widows were cared for equally in the daily distribution of food. And that unity within the church probably spoke volumes to the culture around them, right? Here are Greek Jews, Hebraic Jews, non-Jews, living in harmony together, worshiping the same God together, witnessing together about Jesus the healer, Jesus the crucified, Jesus the one who rose again. No wonder, in verse 7, we see the early church continuing to expand, including among those who were formerly opposed to Jesus, the priests, which probably included Sadducees and Pharisees. In other words, the picture of church unity that the deacons helped create itself was a powerful witness of the gospel. And as the church continued to witness, it continued to perform wonders that testified to the power of the living God. As pastors Milt and Mike lead us through the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see how these events in this passage here prepare the church for its mission. Here in this passage, we see both Hebraic and Hellenist Jews living together in community. This is a wonderful reconciliation of groups that were formerly hostile to each other, now coming together for the gospel. In later chapters, Peter becomes convinced that Gentiles as well as Jews, should be hearing the gospel. And then later in Acts, we see Saul become Paul, who will take the gospel to the very ends of the Roman Empire. Now this is all in the future. Here in this text, the apostles are not ready for the changes that God is about to bring. But make no mistake about it, God is bringing change. And we're going to see later in the rest of Acts a wonderful unfolding of God's plan for his message of salvation to reach the very ends of the earth. So a couple points of application here. Back when we started the sermon series, um, we started in Acts 1, where we read this from Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. It says this, When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know 
The times are the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples asked Jesus if he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. The disciples were thinking of a new nation, one free from Roman oppression, where people live righteously and justly according to God's laws. But now listen to Jesus' response in verse 7. He doesn't say a restored Israel is a bad thing. He doesn't say it will never happen. He doesn't say that God intended Rome to rule forever. The crucified Christ himself knew how cruel, corrupt, and unjust the Romans could be. He just says, it's not for you to know when God will fulfill his promises, or even how he will fulfill them. That's not your mission. Your mission is to be witnesses for me to the ends of the earth. And church, that is our mission too. We, the church, are called to be witnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We, the church, are called to be witnesses of the gospel message. There are other institutions that protect society and bring about human flourishing. And as Christians, when we're part of those institutions, we do it to bring God glory. But this specific mission, the proclamation of the gospel, is solely the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ. Because if the church doesn't do it, no other institution will. But as this passage shows, how we live and care for each other is a necessary part of that witness. Would the church proclaim the gospel well if we didn't love and care for each other? Would the church be a good witness if we didn't love and care for the world around us? The God we proclaim wants to live our lives for his glory, but at the very same time, he's a God who loves people, and he wants each of us to reflect his kind of love. The church would be a failed witness if we didn't love one another and those around us. John 13.35 says this, By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So back to the original question I posed at the beginning of this sermon. Does God want his people, does God want his church to proclaim the gospel, or does God want his church to take care of people? Yes. The second application is the role of deacons and the structure of the church. The fancy term for this is ecclesiology, biblical knowledge of how the church is structured. Here at CBC, we teach that how our church should be structured is based upon <clears throat> what God's word says. It isn't based upon what corporations are like. Milt isn't the CEO. The elders aren't the board of directors. It's also not based on the structure of our American government. Milt isn't the president. <clears throat> the elders are not the Senate. And the deacons are not the House of Representatives. Thank goodness. Instead, the Bible clearly teaches in several passages that the pastors, working together with the elders, are the overseers and shepherds of our church family. They're preaching and teaching correct church doctrine. They're caring for the spiritual health of the church and, when necessary, administering church discipline. In the passages about the deacons, the Bible clearly teaches that deacons are the servants of the church so that pastors and elders can freely focus on being shepherds and overseers of the church. So, what does the Bible teach that deacons should do? 
couple points. One, okay, we can see from today's passage that deacons do mercy ministry or benevolence. Uh, they help members of the church family who are in need. Uh, secondly, we can see in the same passage that the deacons help preserve the unity of the church. It could be making sure a group of people in the church are not overlooked. It could be encouragement. It could be active listening. It could be counseling. Whatever it takes to make sure our church family is healthy and unified. <clears throat> Biblical scholar Alexander Strauch notes that the Greek word used here for deacon not only expresses the idea of service, but also the idea of agency. The idea that you have authority delegated to you to act according to what your overseer wants. So in this way, the deacons are kind of like agents of the elders. They carry out the vision and the plan of the elders and pastors who are responsible for leading our church family. And as agents and servants, we could also say that deacons are mobilizers of their congregation. Uh, the passage we have here is where seven men stepped up to serve. But as the church grows bigger in Acts, there's no doubt that more than seven were eventually required to distribute bread to the widows. In order to help all widows, it's very likely that the seven deacons had to recruit other members of the early church to help them. So in this way, deacons encourage, mobilize, and lead teams of church members to do good at the direction of the church elders. <clears throat> Now, before I get to the last point of application, I want you to know more about the Benevolence Fund, the money that CBC has set aside for its mercy ministry. Through the Benevolence Fund over the last three years, the deacons have been able to show the love of God through practical assistance to members of our church. <clears throat> members who have lost jobs and needed to cover bills for a month. Members who didn't have health insurance for the medical care they needed. Members who spent savings caring for a family member with cancer and then needed some financial assistance themselves. This isn't just limited to members. <clears throat> In some cases, CBC has also helped people outside the church. Uh, we've uh, supported crisis pregnancy centers. We've helped Afghan refugees, providing furniture for their homes, helping them get driver's licenses so they can get to their jobs to provide for their families. <clears throat> now, for obvious reasons, the deacons keep re requests for help confidential. But I have to tell you, there are so many stories of people being helped. It would take me hours to tell you all of them. I am so, so thankful that our church is a church that loves others through practical assistance. If you attend this church and need help, the deacons welcome you to reach out to them, either directly or through a pastor, elder, or community group leader. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. The last point of application. Although today's passage is about deacons, today's message is really about service. I don't want anyone here to think today that to serve here at CBC, you have to be a deacon. You don't. The office of deacon is a title, but you don't need a title to serve. And I think many of you here listening today already understand this very well. Many of you have given of yourself time and time again to helping with ministry here at CBC. Whether it's generosity feeds, September Fest, conversational English, children's ministry, youth ministry, worship and AV team, welcome team, chair setup team, 
And last but definitely not least, the Trader Joe's grocery run pickup. <laughs> the list goes on and on of people who are serving faithfully. If you fall into this category, I want you to know how much our church family appreciates you and your service. Great is your reward in heaven. But for some of you here, even after attending CBC for several years, you haven't taken an active serving role yet. Can I encourage you to just reach out to the pastors, elders, and deacons and find a place in the church to serve? It doesn't take a large time commitment to make a huge difference. And in serving, I guarantee you, you're going to find a sense of joy and satisfaction you won't find anywhere else. So whether you've served a lot or a little, can I suggest something that will be helpful? Our service in church is something we do out of the abundance of our hearts, not in a sense of obligation or in a sense of needing to be in God's good graces. If you're a believer, you already have a superabundance of God's love and goodness, and that will never change, whether you serve a little or a lot. Because our service is to God, um, can I encourage you to follow the Holy Spirit's leading about how you manage your time? Last weekend, we had a faith and culture night where Pastor Mike uh, <clears throat> talked about the biblical view of rest. And I'm saying the same thing here. If you have been faithfully serving in a ministry here, you may be in a season of life where you have more responsibilities than before. Uh, maybe you have small children or you need to take care of aging parents. If this is you and you're feeling totally burned out, can I ask you to prayerfully consider dialing it back a bit and letting somebody else take a turn at serving? And then when your situation changes and you've got some time back, consider stepping back into serving at church. And maybe you're in the opposite category. Maybe you've recently retired or you've got some extra time in your hands. If you're in this season of life, consider using some of your spare time to serve in a ministry here at church. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. No matter what category we're in, Let's do what the early church did and keep Jesus as our inspiration to minister to each other. Jesus put a premium on serving others. In every culture, authority and power and self-promotion are indicators of greatness. Right? Look at all the social media influencers. Right? Look at all the celebrities out there. But for Jesus, greatness is always tied to service. Look at his example, washing the disciples' feet. If you want to be a leader, you must be a servant. If you want to be great, learn to serve. Serve with humility. Serve without self-promotion. Serve without expectation of reward. Serve because you love. Serve because Jesus served us. I want to end this message with a passage from Mark 10, 42 to 45. It says this, And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I can't think of a better ending to this sermon than this. So let's together bow our hearts, bow our heads, open our hearts, and pray together as we end our service today.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church family, for the opportunities to love one another, but most of all, we thank you for Jesus, who has given us freedom from how the world views greatness and has given us an example of himself, the greatest servant of all, who gave his life for all of us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in this week, not only will you guide us and protect us, but you're going to find opportunities for us to serve and to love each other. Help us to love each other. Help us to care for each other in the strength that you have given us. We do this all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.